If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life, and I had to start again with just my family and my life. I thank my God above to be living here today, cause the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston and New York to LA. Well, there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and time we've had this morning. We are now back in Jonah. Jonah, the book of Jonah. We are look at verses, chapter 1, verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 9. When you find your way there, if you will, stand with me in reverence of the reading of God's word. Jonah, we're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 17. 
Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell I cried, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then said I, I'm cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. And the waters compassed me about, even to the soul, the depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped around my head, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains and the earth, and her bars were about me forever, yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. I want to talk to you this morning about the repentance of the called. The repentance of the called. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open our minds, our ears, our eyes to the message of the Lord this morning. Father, we thank you again for this wonderful day. And God, we're so grateful for the worship that has occurred. And Father, we're thankful for the talent that we've been blessed with here at the church and we get to enjoy that. God, it's a blessing from you. And Lord, it is meant to glory and glorify and honor you. And God, we're grateful for that. Lord, as we come to this time of uh, worship in word, uh, Lord, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive the message, to see the truth, to hear the call of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, uh, help us uh, to have the will to be obedient to those things which you show us. Father, I pray that your blessed Holy Spirit would move among us and that he would provide illumination for us, direction. Father, conviction, challenge. Lord, I just pray, God, that you do your work this morning and your people. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to consider this. This is the fourth paragraph of the book of Jonah and uh, the fourth paragraph in our experience with him. It is uh, that proverbial uh, come to Jesus moment that many of us think about. This is what's happening here to Jonah, he is coming to the reality of uh, the glory of God and the, the, the sovereignty of God and the conviction of God and the call of God. And it's this, this come to Jesus thing, this is probably something that many of us have experienced. Most of us have probably experienced it more than once. And it's quite uh, possible that there are several here today that are due for another moment like this. A moment of sobriety, a moment of realization, uh, 
a moment of remembrance of who God is and what he has done in your life and what he's called you to do and what he's gifted you to do. And that could apply to every seat in here, including the pulpit this morning. We've discussed over the last uh, three weeks uh, these other paragraphs, and we've seen this ugly response that led to a retreat uh, that seemingly concluded in the resignation of God's chosen servant, wherein he said, just, just throw me in, just cast me in. We've spoken about the historical implications of that episode and the prophetical implications of Israel as God's chosen nation who were unwilling to obey due to pride. They were unwilling to be a blessing to the Gentile nations that they were intended to be. We've also noted, and we spoke about this at length, uh, the applications to the church of today. Not fully obeying God's call to go, and of course the individual obligations of the believer to be witnesses unto him among all peoples. And I'm sure that each of us would be able to honestly say, if we could be honest, that's me. I've been guilty of that. At times, there have been times when uh, I was unwilling or I responded poorly. Maybe I even retreated. There's probably been some times in each life where there has been a moment of resignation. Uh, and you likely know, as, as I do, someone who has resigned and refuses to re-enlist. They've just checked out of the, the, the gospel game, so to speak. One of the concepts that we mentioned early when we started this study was that every servant of God, every born-again believer, every Christian, if you will, is called, but not all are compliant. So there's, there's no one here this morning. I want that to be very evidently clear to every person who's here. There's not anybody here this morning that could say, I am a born-again Christian and at the same time say, there is no calling upon my life. Though that does not exist. Every born-again believer is called. But every born-again believer is not compliant. Therefore, the gospel does not do all that it was intended to do because it is intended to be carried by man to man. And all of us are not compliant. And certainly, all of us are not compliant all of the time. And so we wanted to make that, that concept a part of this study. Everyone is called, but not everyone is compliant. Another concept that we mentioned early on, and we're going to try to establish that today, is that, that God will not cast a believer aside for faithlessness. So when God calls you to do something and you respond poorly, you refuse, you retreat, you resign, whatever word you want to use there, you're slow to respond, you're disobedient, you are lacking in effort, whatever the case may be, God is not going to cast you out or cast you aside 
because of the lack of faithfulness because that would be akin to a work that maintains your relationship and there's no such thing. There is a work that comes from your relationship but there is not one that maintains your relationship so he will not cast aside the faithless. Rather what he'll do is he will set them down. We used the analogy a few weeks ago of benching a player. That is, in effect, what he's done with Jonah. He's benched him. He's done it in a pretty spectacular way. But he's benched him. And so he will sit you down, and then when you are prepared to serve and respond in obedience, God will then use you to the fullest extent that he has gifted you to be used. And so we don't have to uh, live forever with bad, bad decisions. There is repentance that recovers from that decision and God can restore. He would say uh, uh, through, the, through the prophet Joel that he can restore the moth-eaten years. He can restore that thing that laziness or pride or... or uh, fear or, or whatever, re resentment, whatever, he can restore whatever those things devour. God can restore as soon as repentance is made evident. And that's the picture that we have before us today. I would state it this way. Every disobedient child of God will be disciplined. But not all will be destroyed. However, the negative implication is not all will be restored because some will never repent until such time as the flesh is destroyed. This process of restoration is often accompanied by some form of discipline, chastisement, and it always, always, always requires repentance. That is the goal. So, in a light moment here, if you were raised around Atlanta... In the 70s and 80s, you, remember, you may remember this announcement with some nostalgia. It occurred once a week, and this is what it said. We've arrived at a great moment in time. Does anybody remember that? I'm probably the only odd guy in the room. And it was followed by this. It's Friday. You remember that? Well, I want to tell you this morning, we've arrived at a great moment in time. It's fish day. Today we get to meet the, the retribution, the reinforcement, the redirection, and eventually the repentance that God sent for Jonah. And I want you to see as we look through this, I want you to see that God could send something like this for you and likely will and likely has. The first thing I want you to notice, and we read it in verse 17, uh, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. I want you to see first that the great fish was prepared and it was preemptive. It was, this is indicative of the way God works. God did not call Jonah and then realize, oh no, Jonah ran. And then go chase Jonah and then realize, oh no, he's on a boat. And then send a storm and then realize, oh no, they're going to throw him in. And then send a fish. That's not how God works. That fish was prepared and it was preemptive. 
It was sent ahead of time. We talked last week or two weeks ago about the prepared things in the book of Jonah. There's a study right there in and of itself that the great storm was prepared, the fish was prepared, the gourd is prepared, the worm is prepared, the vehement east wind is prepared. And so this is what we need to do. We need to ask ourselves, what is the meaning or what is the purpose of the prepared things? Because if we can discover what the purpose of the prepared things are, we might can see that prepared application in our life of those things. And this is what I believe it is. Each of those things were prepared by God for Jonah, and each of them had a representation or an intention of discipline, direction, development, or demonstration. So every one of these prepared things that God prepared, that means uh, ahead of time, before the need, were done for the discipline of Joshua, for the develop Jonah, excuse me, for the development of Jonah, for the direction of Jonah, or for a demonstration of God's grace or God's power. Every one of those things. They were all intended to challenge Jonah, and in the challenge, the goal was conviction and conversion. Convict of the wrong behavior, convert it to a right behavior. God would say to Peter, you're going to deny me, but when you're converted. That is the picture that we have here. This is a picture of conviction and conversion. And so in my opinion, we can see these types of events in our life, and in each one we can witness the hand of God moving. Now, this is the problem. Typically, it's in hindsight, right? It's rare that we enter into a trial and say, oh, glory to God. He's developing me, right? <laughs> but we can look back and we can say, well, praise the Lord. Uh, God did that and then he did this and then he did that. And because of those occurrences, he developed in me some particular ability or skill or gift or repentance some folks would write those things off. Some people would say it was Jonah's good luck or, or bad luck or it was fortune or it was folly. And some people do that with their life. Well, you know, I just, I got lucky and, or to my good fortune or, well, you know, things went bad and, and there's always this explanation that would write these things off. But for the believer, we ought to lean into the understanding that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Everything is under the sovereign care of God. God is directing that thing for your good and for his glory. You can, you can see this, by the way. Make a note here if you want to look. Acts 2.23 there's a picture of it there. There's another picture of it in Matthew 26, verse 24. Let me tell you about those two things real quickly. In Matthew 26, 24, Christ is having that last supper. He is enjoying that last moment with his disciples. He prophesies to them that one of them is going to betray. And then he looks at Judas and he says to him, it was predetermined that this should happen to the Son of Man, but woe unto the person who betrays him. That's God's sovereignty, knowing ahead of time, but Judas is held responsible for it. In Acts 2.23, Peter preaching to the masses there at Pentecost, and he says to them, by the predeterminate hand of God, 
he was, uh, this man was crucified. But he lays the blame on, on their sins because that's where it rides. And so we recognize this, this prepared and this preemptive uh, aspect of the sovereignty of God. So if God is sovereign and all things help for a reason or happen for a reason, then we should observe that. One way that we recognize that every week, I say it typically on Sundays. I did not say it today to, to my remiss. Uh, but typically I say to you, God is sovereign and we believe if you're here, God intended you to be here. Everybody's nodding their head because you hear me say it all the time. And he intended for you to hear every word, every note played, every song saying God intended for that to occur in your life today. That is the, the prepared and preemptive aspect of the sovereignty of God. And so what we would recognize in that is that God is directing the events around us and so we can lean into that, that every event, every occurrence is meant for direction, development, discipline, or demonstration, if we'll look for it. And, and I want to be honest here, because I'm confident somebody's going to ask me at the door, or worse yet, email me. Uh, and you're welcome to do that, by the way, I'll respond. Uh, but somebody's going to say, okay, explain that. I just want to tell you ahead of time, I cannot explain it. I don't, I don't pretend to be able to explain it. I cannot explain the exact how and the why of that truth. I'm unable to answer a lot of the questions that that truth would elicit. But I believe that these events are sovereignly directed by the hand of God, that they are preemptive. That means they're anticipatory of my actions, which God knows ahead of time, and that they are corrective in nature, and I know as a believer, if I will observe these things, these events, these people, these occurrences that God brings into my life, I will never be at a loss for growth, guidance, or good insight because God will direct me. He'll guide me. That's the picture we have here in Jonah. This great fish was prepared. If you would... Wanted to play it out in the, in the, the annals of, 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 of God's uh, counsel with himself, it would have been something like this. We're going to call Jonah and he's going to run because you know how Jonah is. And we're going to shake the ship up. And when we do, we're going to throw him in. But send old uh, Skippy boy over there to swallow him and get him where I want him to go. God preemptively prepared that fish. The second thing we notice is in the second part of 17. And, and that is that the discipline was preserving and protective. I think it's very important that you comprehend this. Because we were all children at one time and we remember what our daddy said to us, right? Boy, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Which never felt to be true in the moment. Well, this is what we see here. This great fish ends up being an alternative to drowning. That's what it is. If, 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 the, if the large fish were not sent, Jonah sinks. Jonah is on the bottom of the ocean. Jonah is fish food, literally. He's dead. He's gone. He is drowning. There is no other opportunity here for Jonah to survive this moment. 
And so while I would not say that, look, I'm, I'm excited, I'm in a hurry to be swallowed by a large fish, if I were sinking into the depths of the sea, drowning, a fish might be an improvement of the immediate circumstance. Swallow me and get it over with, right? Or swallow me so I can breathe inside of you. Whatever the, the case is, this, this, what we see is this discipline was for preservation and for protection. God had full intentions of Jonah accomplishing the work that God sent him to do. It was never in question. It was going to occur. And, and listen, God knows you that way as well. Psalm 139 says he knows all about you. And he told Jeremiah, I called you while you were in your mother's womb. He knows you that way too. He knows what he's called you to do. He's no, he knows what good works are set aside for you to accomplish. And it is his intention for you to accomplish them. And when you are disobedient, there may be a time of discipline. But the discipline is for preserving, preservation and for protection. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a, something has got to be discussed here. A lot of theologians argue about this. They've argued for eons as to whether or not Jonah sank and died and was then swallowed by the fish and then dead and God resurrected him or did the fish swallow him and he died and God resurrected him or did he live for three days inside the fish? Uh, that's, a, that's a tremendous theological argument and I'm not exactly sure it matters, just to be quite honest with you. I, I really don't know that it matters. I mean, you tell me. If a great, if they threw you in the middle of the ocean and a great fish swallowed you and then three days later spat you out on the ground, would it matter whether or not you were dead? It's pretty horrific either way, right? I don't know that it matters. The argument for the literal death is related to the way that Christ described the situation with Jonah. Christ said, using Jonah as a sign, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, or the belly of the great fish, three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the, in the earth. And so since Christ literally died and was resurrected, they reverse engineer that to say, well, Jonah must have been dead and resurrected. But there was a sign, and, and you can read that in Matthew chapter 12, that there was a sign that Christ was talking about and it was, it could have to do, and, and most people believe it was the fact that Jonah was out of sight and out of mind for three days, as good as dead, and then he reappeared. But I'm not 100% sure that the sign wasn't the fact that those wicked Ninevites repented and the Jews would not. There's a sign right there as well. And Christ included it in that, that, that the, the men of Nineveh shall rise and judge this generation and condemn it. Because somebody better than Jonah has arrived. Christ used that often. Somebody better than uh, Solomon is here and you won't listen to him. And the entire book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul to show that Christ is a better option than Moses. He's a better option than the angels. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. He's better than all of it. And so I'm not sure that the sign was death and resurrection as much as it was recognition and repentance. But at any rate, you, you can make your own decision there. The important fact is this. Three days later, and we won't see it today, we'll see it next week, but three days later, Jonah is walking on dry land 
accomplishing that thing that God originally sent him to do. That's the point. It is that what we see is that that fish preserved Jonah. If he would have been left to the sea, he was dead, but he was not left to the sea because he belonged to God, and God doesn't leave any of us to destruction. We are not meant for destruction and wrath. We are meant for obedience and, and glory. And, and that is what we see here. Metaphorically speaking, if you're into metaphors, metaphorically speaking, if you're drowning in a sea of bad decisions and God comes along and swallows you up in discipline, don't give up. Look up and fess up. Repent and let God bring you back up to where he intended you to be to start with. That's the message in Jonah. And so we see that, that this, this discipline was preserving and protective. And typically in our lives, discipline from God is preserving and protective. I want you to notice the third part of verse 17. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I want you to see that the time was precise and it was prophetic. The prophetic aspect of it doesn't speak to you and I very much. Uh, when we see the, the prophetic part, I appreciate the precise part immensely, but the, the prophetic part, Christ refers to it to do with his death, burial, and resurrection, and that's the prophetic part. But the applicable lesson for us is that God determined the length of the discipline to be exactly concurrent with the time of repentance. It's precise. He, he didn't say, well, uh, 40 years you'll be in the belly of the fish. He didn't say that. There was, there was no condemnation associated with it. It was discipline that was meant to bring about repentance. And when we can have that same understanding in our life, it goes back to that idea that God will not cast a believer aside for faithlessness, he's going to sit you down. He's going to set you aside. There's going to be a time of discipline. But when repentance occurs, he is going to restore. He's not going to overlook you. He's not going to forget you. He's not going to discard you. Any of you guys ever, I don't know if they do it in school anymore. When I was in school, I was in there a lot. Any of you guys ever go to in-house suspension or in-house detention? And when I was uh, in school, uh, you went in there and wrote sentences. And every sentence was a paragraph. And they'd give you some ridiculous number like, you know, you got to write 5,000 of those. And when you do, you can come out. You'd be in there for a month writing that silly sentence. I'm not sure of the disciplinary action that was involved in that. I don't know the corrective part of that. I do know this. More than one time, they forgot I was in there which always devalued me even more, made me want to act up a little bit more. If I was acting up to get attention and you put me in here and forget it, well, I must not have done a good enough job. I need to act up a little bit better, right? God never forgets. God will not set you aside. God will not cast you on the backside of the desert as he did Moses unless he plans on coming and getting you later in order to use you. God does not forget. God does not cast aside. God does not, does not disqualify you indeterminately. He is simply looking for repentance and obedience. That's it. 
And so what we need to understand is that he loves me, he gave his life for me, he has called me, and I may not be willing to concur today, and if that's the case, God's going to send some trial or some tribulation or some form of discipline in my life, but when I am, in, 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 when I am prepared to repent and be obedient, God is going to use me. And look, I've lived that. I lived... Uh, Better than a decade in absolute, complete disobedience and rebellion against God. And the moment that I began to walk with him again, he showed me that he could restore me and use me, and he did. And he can do that in every life. He's just looking for repentance, acquiescence, agreement. 1 John 1, 9, we quote it all the time. But the word there, that, that if you'll confess, is the word homologia. It means to say the same thing. That's what God is looking for in his children. He's wanting you to agree with him about the wickedness of your sin, about the disobedientness of your disobedience, that, that he is right and you are wrong, that about the righteousness of his son, about the penalty of your sin, and about the, the propitiation of Christ, that I deserve to be in hell, I deserve death, I, I have sinned, and the penalty of sin is death, and that comes with an eternal separation from God. But Christ, while I was yet without strength, died for me. He's wanting you to agree with that. And when you repent of your sinfulness, he's going to relent of his condemnation. He wants to see you in the righteousness of Christ. And for the born-again believer, as soon as we repent, God sees us. He restores Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to cover this all in one fell swoop. From verse 1 to verse 9 is all one prayer. Jonah's been cast in. He's been swallowed up. And my opinion is after, after that three days was up, that's when he began to pray. You can read it any way you would like. But what I can tell you for confident is that in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed, and everything from there on is the prayer till you get to the end of verse 9. And I want you to acknowledge or to see what is in this prayer. And I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And what did he do? He heard me. He answered. He heard me. You see that? Jonah acknowledges God's hearing. God is waiting on you to speak to him. He is waiting on you to communicate with him. He is there wanting to respond to you. And God, Jonah here acknowledges, he said, when I cried out, he heard me. And when he heard me, that is a picture of the mercy of God because he should not be listening to us. We are, Jonathan Edwards said, lower than a worm. God heard me. Look what he says in verse 3. For thou hadst me, hadst cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me. Here, Jonah acknowledges God's hand. You had me. It wasn't, it wasn't my decision 
to get on that boat. It wasn't my decision to run. All of those things I'm responsible for, but God, you had me in your hand the entire time. In that ship, uh, those sailors, I told them to cast me over and they did, but God, you had me in your hand. You threw me in the water. You plucked me out of the water. You had me in your hand. And he's acknowledging there the sovereignty of God. In verse four, he says, then said I, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward the holy temple. And so here he is acknowledging the holiness of God, that God is holy and that he is righteous. In verses five through seven, he says all of these things happened but in verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple, and they, you brought life to me again. He acknowledges God's help. He brought life, that is grace. And then in verse 8, Jonah repents. That's what that is, that acknowledgement there in verse 8, that uh, those who observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah forsook the mercy of God in disobedience. And I'm saying to you this morning, when you think about that idea of, of lying vanities, untrue emptiness, uh, deceitful concerns, you've forsaken the mercy of God. In verse 9, Jonah commits to follow. I will pay that which I have vowed. No matter who you are this morning, no matter where you are, no matter what you are doing, no matter what you're guilty of, no matter what you're ashamed of, if you are running, if you are hiding, if you have been arrogant, if you have been prideful, if you have been hateful, it does not matter. If you will speak to God in repentance, he will hear you. He has his mind on you. He has his hand on you. He is holy and he will do right and he will help you. You just need to repent. If you're here this morning and you're backslidden, you say, preacher, I'm born again, but I haven't been living right. I haven't been doing the things that God has asked me to do. I've been disobedient. That's fine. He'll forgive and restore you to righteousness. All you have to do is repent. If you're here this morning and you're yet unregenerate, you cannot tell of a day where you've surrendered unto God and God saved you. You don't remember a time when the Lord birthed in you a new life. Repent of your unbelief. Remove yourself from the throne and put Christ on the throne. With the heart man believes and with the mouth confession is made unto righteousness, he will not forsake anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. It's repentance. You only need to repent and he'll do the rest. Would you stand with me this morning? Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed as she prepares to play. Every event is for direction, development, discipline, or demonstration. Every event. In light of that truth, what is God doing in your heart this morning? Is he directing you? Is he demonstrating his goodness for you? Is he developing you? Are you currently under the disciplining hand of God? Just repent. Would you come this morning? Father, I pray you bless this time of invitation. 
In Jesus' name. The altar's open. Would you come this morning? I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and just for a moment. I think Brother Derek may be out with the Children's Church. Uh, we do have service this evening. Uh, it'll all be here in the sanctuary. Dr. Deems is teaching tonight and uh, we expect a light crowd.